and the violent take it by force. And Father, we would just ask that for the next few moments, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, as we prepare them to receive communion in a moment, we pray that your word would just penetrate our heart, would reveal anything within us that needs to be addressed. So that, Lord, when we take communion in a few moments, we can take it knowing that we're receiving in a worthy manner. Lord, be glorified. Challenge us. Comfort us. As only you can through your word, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. Would you give the Lord praise in this house one more time? Amen. And before you're seated, you know what to do. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you love them in Jesus' name. Hey, now, now, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time here, the last several weeks we've been working through a series of messages that we have simply entitled, The Struggle. And the big idea, the big thought that we are trying to convey in this series is that salvation is worth the struggle. Would you say that with me? Salvation is worth the struggle. We are convinced that the salvation we have found in Christ is worth the struggle and the struggles that we experience in this world. As I said to you last week, I say it again this week, that is something that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to settle in your heart right now. You have to resolve yourself to that. You have to come to grips with that in your own heart. We need to resign ourselves to the fact that if we are going to live godly in Christ Jesus, if we are going to please the Lord in all that we do, if we are going to walk through this world with a biblical worldview, which is to say that we view life through the teachings of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and through the teachings of apostles that expounded more upon those teachings, that we will suffer. That we will suffer to one degree or another. That we will meet pushback. That there will be resistance. That there will be opposition in our hearts and our lives. And listen, we're not talking about the difficulties and the trials and the testings that all men and women endure. The Bible says that God causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. So there are trials and there are tribulation that we experience as just being men and women living in a fallen world. We're not talking about those general difficulties. We are specifically talking in this series about the difficulties and the struggles that we encounter as a direct result of placing our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our personal Savior. If you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you need to know you are going to spend your life cutting across the grain. You're going to constantly be swimming upstream. Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to conform yourself to his image. If they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. That's what Jesus said. And so you need to just come to grips with the fact that if I'm going to live out my faith, if I'm going to please the Lord in all that I do, and in all that I say, there's going to be opposition to that. 
Because men and women do not want to conform to the image of Christ. They want to live their lives the way they want to. So there's going to be things that you are compelled to do as a believer that the world is going to mock you for. There are going to be things that you are compelled as a believer not to do. They're going to mock you for that. You're always going to be in a position where there's going to be tension and resistance in this world. And you need to come to grips with that. Jesus put it this way. We just read it. That from the moment the kingdom of heaven entered into this world, it has suffered violence. It has been violently opposed. It has been violently uh, rejected and violently resisted in the earth. And Jesus said that's the way it's always been. It will be the way it is until Christ comes again. But then he goes on to say that the, that the violent take it by force. Again, I want to remind you that he's not saying that we use physical violence to lead people to Jesus Christ. Okay, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that on an individual basis, because the kingdom of heaven is always suffering this tension that only those who have a violent, forceful attitude and mindset are going to press through that difficulty and lay hold of the kingdom of heaven. He is saying that it is difficult to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not difficult to be saved. We're saved by the grace of God. But it is with great difficulty that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And only those who have a violent, forceful mindset and say salvation is worth the struggle are going to make it all the way through the end. The good news is, is that God has shown us in his word that he uses that difficulty to shape us and to form us into the men and women that God has called us to be in Jesus' name. Now, last week I shared with you that if we are going to make it through those seasons of testing and trial and tribulation, that it's going to take more than good intentions and a bold confession. There are many Christians that show up on Sunday morning and they honestly believe that their good intentions and their strong declaration of faith in the Lord is going to carry them when those times of testing come. But we made very clear last week that it's going to take more than a bold confession and good intentions. You are going to need a plan. You are going to need a strategy. You are going to need to prepare your heart. And I would ask you again, like I asked you last week, what are you doing on a daily basis to prepare for this hour of testing? Because it's not a matter of if it's coming, it's only a matter of when it comes. What are you doing right now to prepare yourself for that hour that is most certainly coming? That Paul called the evil day. It is coming as sure as we're here this morning. It will be upon you. What are you doing to prepare for that moment. If there was anyone that could talk to us about that, it would be Peter. As we talked about last week, Peter, the disciple of Christ, oftentimes would make bold confessions and would declare his good intention of following the Lord, even if it meant death to himself. And yet when the test came, he crumbled and he fell apart. And it put him in a unique position to be able to speak to anyone who was going to go through that in the future. And what's interesting is that some 30 years after Jesus said this, 30 years after his epic failures, he had an opportunity to do just that. He wrote a letter, we know it as First Peter, 
And in 1 Peter chapter 4, but in really the whole uh, letter itself, he's addressing Christians who are being persecuted. This is around 64 AD. It's late 64 AD, and the church at that time is on the brink of persecution. I mean real persecution, like real life and death issues. And they are panicking, they are concerned about their families, they're concerned about their lives, they don't know what is going to happen, and for this reason many of them have already bailed from the faith, some are considering bailing on the faith at this particular time, and the Holy Spirit awakens the heart of Peter to write this letter and to encourage them. And what Peter says is, listen, it's not enough to have good intentions. You are going to have to prepare your heart for the difficulties that are coming. And listen to what he said again in 1 Peter 4 and verse 18. If you want to go there, you can. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18. He says, quoting Proverb 11 and verse 31. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, Word scarcely means barely. If the righteous one is scarcely, barely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? One translation says that the righteous are saved with difficulty. Another translation says it's hard for the righteous to be saved. Now thankfully, no way, shape, or form is Peter suggesting that God has a hard or difficult time saving us. How many of you say amen? You know, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, is salvation that thin that it cannot guarantee me eternal life? No, no, no. This is not an indictment against God. We looked at it last week. God's mercy is abundant enough. His sacrifice is sufficient enough. And His power is strong enough not only to save us, but to keep us all of our days. Can you say amen? So it's not difficult for God to save us. The indictment is against you and me. He's saying the easy part is God saving you. The difficult part is keeping men and women in the grace of God as they pass through the difficult seasons. That's what he's saying. Remember, the whole context of 1 Peter is persecution. So what he's saying is it's easy for God to save men and women. It's hard to keep them under the grace of God as they pass through these difficult seasons because most people want to bail when things get difficult. Most people want to bail when things become challenging and hard and they go through these tests and these trials. God can keep you, but you have to remain in His grace in Jesus' mighty name. That's what He's saying. In fact, really what He's saying here is that Because the trials and the testings of our faith in Jesus Christ are so intense that it is with great difficulty that men and women enter in to the kingdom of Almighty God. And it's for that reason that many will bail before the end and many others will never enter in to begin with. There are a lot of men and women that just collapse. And you know, I've been in the church long enough and I have been a pastor long enough to see men and women who started out with great joy and were ready to go all the way with God, but today are not following Jesus Christ because things got harder than they ever thought they would. 
They never prepared their heart. And yet there are other people that do not know the Lord and when they count the costs and they consider what may come as a result of their faith in Christ, they just say, no, I'm going to look for a broader, more accommodating path. Jesus said that path leads to destruction. He said straight and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few, few there be that find it. Now, Peter understood that that's a hard pill to swallow. So he said, let me give you some things to do. Verse 19, and again, I'm just going to say this quickly. He says, therefore, in light of the difficulty, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter gave us no less than three things to remember when we're going through suffering. Number one, remember that sometimes suffering is the will of God to prepare us for the future. I didn't say that. God's word said it. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. God will allow us to go through challenges because he's preparing us for the future. How many of you want God to use you throughout your lifetime? Amen? Come on, how many of you want God to use you? Then you've got to be willing to let some weight be applied to your life. Next, remember to commit your life to His hands. We commit our souls to Him in doing good. In other words, what He's saying is, you're going to be tempted to take matters into your own hands, to bolt. He says, no, you continue to do good and commit your life to the hands of the Lord. And then finally he says, remember that he is faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the creator. How many of you are thankful you are a new creation in the Lord? He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Now this morning, I want to go a little deeper with this. And it will lead us into communion. I'm not going to take a lot of time here. But in order to go deeper, I want us to go now to the first verse in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 1. Listen to what he says. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that's a powerful verse. But I'm not going to look at the whole verse. It would take us too long today. I'm going to try and land this next Sunday. But this morning I want to draw your attention to the first part of that verse. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. That's a mouthful in itself. The other day when I sat in my office and I just began to read this and I really sought to hear what the Spirit was saying to us, the thought occurred to me, again, of the audience that Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to hurting, broken, struggling, confused, and afraid believers. These men and women see the beginning of persecution coming. And they know it is not going to be pretty. Like, they know it's going to be more than somebody laughing at them in a restaurant because they prayed over their meal. These men and women know that Nero is a violent man. What they couldn't know at that time is that many of them would be turned into human candles to light up Nero's garden. That many of them would be thrown to lions and be tore apart for their faith. They are frightened. 
And what is interesting is that as a pastor, I would think that my first comment to them would be to offer them comfort. But yet, Peter does not offer them comfort. Instead, he offers them focus. Christ, who suffered for us in the flesh. I think that's interesting. Peter doesn't come out with nice comforting thoughts. Instead, he offers them focus. Turn your eyes to Christ who suffered for us in the flesh. He turns their attention from their suffering to focus on Christ and his suffering. Because Peter understood the power that is released in focus. That focus really will determine the outcome of your life. And if there was anyone who understood the power of focus, it was Peter. Because many of you know that 30 years before he wrote this, one night he was in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with all of his other disciples. And a storm came out of nowhere and put all of them in peril. And then all of a sudden in the night, Jesus comes walking on the water. At first they thought it was a spirit. And Peter said, I I don't know what's going on. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It is I. And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, would you bid me to come out to you? And Jesus says, come on out and see what it feels like. And Peter steps out of the boat. And for the first time in history, a man walked upon the water because his eyes were on Jesus Christ. But as soon as he began to look at the waves and the storm and the rain and the peril that they were in, that's when he began to sink. And Peter now says, 30 years later, to these men, and women, he says, if you can keep your eyes on Jesus, then you can make it through this persecution. But if you look at the persecution, then you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. And folks, what was true 2,000 years ago is true today. If you keep your eyes on your pain, you're going to sink and fail. But if you can keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, then somehow he's going to make a way where there seems to be no other way. Come on, give God the praise for that if you believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's why it says in Isaiah 26 and verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because he trusts in you. If I can keep my mind fixed upon the goodness of God and all that he's done for me, he will keep me. He will hold on to me and give me perfect peace in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, give him the praise if you believe that today. Now, It's interesting is that certainly this is not the first time the persecuted Christians were encouraged to look to Jesus in times of peril. In fact, the author of Hebrews, writing to Jewish Christians living during times of persecution themselves, said to them in Hebrews 12, you know this well, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Now, before I go any further, I do need to identify that great cloud of witnesses. That's important. And to identify them, all you would need to do is go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great hall of faith. And everyone from Abel to Abraham, from Moses to David, is listed out there in their tremendous acts of faith. But the more immediate context is what he says closer to the end of chapter 11. You always remember things that are said later than you do those which were said earlier. And so he's drawing more attention to the group that we 
tend to ignore in chapter 11. Read it. In verse number 35, it says, Women received their dead raised to life again while others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They had an opportunity to be delivered, but they didn't accept it. That they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is the cloud of witnesses. He's saying that there were men and women in the Old Testament who hadn't even seen Jesus, who just prophesied that one day the Messiah would come. And they were actually offered an opportunity to be delivered from hardship. All they had to do was renounce their faith. All that they had to do is accommodate the desires of the nations and just speak an easy message. All they had to do was renounce that the Messiah was coming. That's all that they had to do. But they would not accept that deliverance. They said, sir, we would rather be put into hollowed out logs and sawn in half. We would rather die at the edge of a sword. We would rather be tested and tried. We would rather wander destitute from dens and caves in the earth, having absolutely nothing than to renounce our faith. Would to God that the church in the United States of America would have that kind of commitment to the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. This is the cloud of witnesses. And he says, in light of that, let us, he goes on there in chapter 12, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In other words, he says, never once have any of you, at least at this point, had to shed your blood to resist sin. That day may come one day in the United States. Who knows? The author of Hebrews was very clear here though. When you consider what he said, for consider him who endured such hostility, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. The author is making it very clear that as followers of Jesus Christ, we must view our sufferings within the context of Christ and His sufferings. That when we fail to view our sufferings apart from the context of Christ and His, it's then that we wear out and we become discouraged. He says, lest you become weary and discouraged, he says, look unto Jesus. He says, if you stop considering Jesus and what He endured, that's when you wear out. And that's when you become discouraged. Folks, the only hope we have in this hour of making it is to keep this straight in our thinking. If they 
went after Jesus, they are certainly coming after us. If Jesus had to experience pain to follow the will of God, then we will suffer pain as we follow the will of God. It is not going to be easy, but salvation is worth the struggle. In Jesus' mighty name. The reality is when we get weary... When we get discouraged, it's because we lose sight of Christ. And it's for that reason that he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who originated it and the one who completed it. Really, it is saying he is the trailblazer of our faith, that he's the one that came in and blazed the trail so that all who came after him would know exactly how they were to walk. He started it, he walked it out, and he finished it, having now sat down at the right hand of God the Father and he says I am the way this is the only path it is not an easy path it is a painful path that passes through trials and tribulations and disappointments but I can guarantee you Jesus said it's going to lead to heavenly places and it will be worth it all when you see me face to face and you're seated with me in those heavenly places come on if you have that hope give him a shout of praise in this house This morning. Hallelujah. It'll be worth it all. Slap your neighbor and tell him it'll be worth it all. Jesus. (laughs) Some of you took advantage of that. Okay. (laughs) I heard somebody say this once. It's amazing what you say under the anointing, right? Jesus endured hostility. The author of Hebrews said that that he endured hostility. Many of you know that. It's not just a a statement that's thrown out there. He endured hostility. Many of you know that from his birth, men wanted to kill him. Herod tried to kill Jesus and have him murdered as an infant. Many of you know on his very first day of ministry, recorded in Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned to his hometown and to the synagogue that he was raised in. He was handed a book. He opened it to what we now know as Isaiah 61. And he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He went on to continue to read out the rest of that prophecy in Isaiah 61. When he finished, he handed the book back to the attendant and he sat down and everyone looked at him and he said today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing he was saying I am the Messiah I have come to preach good news to the poor to heal the brokenhearted. I have come to give hope to the hopeless and what did he get for it they wanted to cast him off the side of the cliff In John 8, the religious leaders picked up their stones to stone him, but he hid himself and passed through the midst of them. In John 10, they sought to seize him, but he escaped from their hands. They accused him throughout his lifetime of being illegitimately born. They... They accused him of being a blasphemer. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of causing uprisings against Rome. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to entice Jesus by misquoting Scripture to tempt God and to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, which was 200 feet in the air, essentially trying to tempt Jesus to commit suicide. In Matthew chapter 16, Satan inspired the heart of Peter, his best friend, 
to try and talk Jesus out of going to the cross. All throughout his lifetime, Jesus experienced intense violence, hatred, mockery, accusation, personal conflict and turmoil, all to try and to get him to prematurely die or to get him to quit and give up until the most critical hour in human history in the Garden of Gethsemane. It all boiled down to that moment in time. As Jesus left the upper room that night with his disciples, Jesus could literally feel the weight of sin coming upon his holy heart, a heart that had never once in its internal existence entertained even the thought of sin. Imagine that. We know that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, but God the Son has never seen beginning of days, nor will ever see the end of days. He is the eternal, self-existent Son of the living God. Can you say amen? Yes, God the Son became flesh 2,000 years ago and remains in that glorified body today, but He never at any point had a birth He always existed. He is the eternal Son of the living God Almighty. And never in His eternal existence did He ever entertain the thought of sin. And now the sin of man is being placed upon Him. He became sin for you and for me. Think about that. From the moment that Jesus came out of the waters of baptism and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, or better, is taking away the sins of man. The sins of mankind were being placed upon his holy heart. And it was incredible. As the enormity of this hour became clear to him, the Bible says that he went to the garden, and in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 37, we read this, and Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And understand, he was not using that as a metaphor. Oftentimes, we will say things like, I was scared to death. And we use it metaphorically. Jesus was not speaking in a metaphor. He was literally saying that I am so sorrowful and deeply distressed and under such mental torment at this moment, I am on the verge of dying. That is literally what he meant. He said that I am under such a heavy mental anguish, under such a heavy spiritual burden at this moment, if God does not intervene, I will die before I get to the cross. And if Jesus had died before the cross, salvation would have never been possible. He had to make it to the cross. Jesus had to die a very specific death. And that is sadly something that 9 out of 10 Christians have never even considered before. If any death, or if all that was necessary for the covering of our sin was death, then any death would have been sufficient. If any death would have been sufficient, then it would have been better for Jesus to be, to be taken out as an infant. If that was all that was necessary. If all that was necessary was death... 
The Jews had their form of capital punishment. It was stoning. So why didn't Jesus get stoned? It was so important that Jesus die of a specific way that hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans, it was prophesied in Isaiah 53. He'll be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It's a perfect description of the crucifixion process. The Romans were the ones that invented crucifixion. As the Jews heard that prophecy, they said, what is he talking about? God placed in the heart of man the preferred method of Christ's death. Because Jesus had to die a very specific way. It wasn't just death. In order for our sins to be covered, or what we would call the atonement, in order for our sins to be covered, in order for our sins to be atoned for, Jesus was going to have to take into his holy heart all the sin of mankind to the point where he became sin for us. He would have to take into his holy heart the sins of all mankind and he would have to die in a public manner. A public manner so that men and women could see before their eyes the devastating, horrific consequences of sin. He had to consciously relive on the cross the pain that sin had brought into the world so that when men and women would look at the Son of the living God dying on the cross, they would come to realize that sin is vile and that it is wicked. And no matter what Hollywood tells us today, sin is still evil and vile and wicked and it separates man from God. And all that you have to do is look to the cross to see that sin is a dreadful matter and it requires a devastating sacrifice in order to cover sin. Mankind was supposed to look upon this and say, if God would not spare his only son, then why would I ever think he would spare me? He was... To die in a gruesome manner to show us the vileness of sin. He had to die a specific manner. And Jesus knew that as he goes into the garden and he says, I know right now with all that is happening to me, I may die before I even get to the cross. And if that happens, then mankind will not be saved. And so he goes into the garden and listen to what he prays. He went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, most Christians, if you ask them why he prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, they would say to you that he said it because he was afraid to die. Nonsense. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. Jesus knew who he was. He wasn't afraid of the cross. He wasn't afraid of the stripes that he would bear. There was no fear there. Jesus knew from the moment he came into this world and grew into the understanding of who he was that he had come to offer his life as a ransom for many. He had boldly declared that to his disciples. I will go to Jerusalem. I will suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and I will die, but I will rise again. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. The reason that he prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, 
is because in order, again, for salvation to be secured, Jesus was going to have to absorb the penalty of sin, which is death. Not physical death, primarily, but spiritual death, which is separation from God. In order for Jesus to be separated from God, he would have to experience what he had never experienced in his eternal existence, and that is broken fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Think about that. For eternity and eternity, he had lived in joyous fellowship with the Father and with the Son. But now, even if for a moment he was going to have to be separated from the Father. And when it got down to that point, he said, Father, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I ever anticipated. Even now as sin is on me, I can feel myself being separated from you. And if there's any other way that this can be done, please let it happen because of all that I'm going to endure over the next several hours, nothing is more important to me than I walk with you. And I'm being separated from you. And he was when he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It took a lot to save us, folks. How dare we keep sinning? He says, Lord, if there's any way, Let it pass. I can't take being separated from you. But then seeing that there was no other way, he then said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. We get a hangnail and think God forsook us. Well, I don't know if I can make it. Jesus made it for you. Nevertheless, Not my will. Your will be done. And he pressed on. And the resistance that he experienced from that moment on is just beyond imagination. But watch this. Peter said, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, these three words are important, in the flesh. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Don't just run over that and think nothing of it. The Holy Spirit made sure that Peter underscored the fact that Christ's suffering was in the flesh. Why? Because you know as well as I do that Jesus was 100% God, but he was 100% man at the same time. There was never a moment when he was less God and more human or less human and more God. He was always 100% man and 100% God at the exact same time. But the Bible makes it clear that when he suffered, he suffered in his flesh because he wants to tell us that not one time in his whole suffering did Jesus ever tap into his divinity to minimize the pain. He says he died in his flesh, he suffered in his flesh so that you and I would know that never once did he tap in or lean into his divine power to relieve the suffering, to make it easier for himself. He never once, he went through it just like you and me have to go through life. 
Leaning upon the Father. Leaning upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus here modeled the fact that I can't make it day by day unless the power of the Holy Ghost comes upon my life and strengthens me to live the life that I have called to live. What did he pray in his flesh? Hebrews 5 tells us this. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 it says, Who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. That is a description of when Jesus was praying in the garden. And what has baffled scholars through the years is the fact that Jesus cried in the garden to the one who was able to save him, that's the Father, from death and was heard. Which means that his prayer was answered. So the question is, where was Jesus saved from death? Certainly not on the cross. And he's not talking about resurrection here because he still would have died. So the question becomes, where was he saved from death? It is my firm conviction That Jesus was saved from death between the garden and the cross. Because all hell was trying to kill him before he could ever die for you and me. And he was delivered from death there. You see, really, Jesus shouldn't have even made it to the cross. He should have died long before he got there. Jesus already went into the garden so heavily depressed and distressed at that point that he acknowledged, I am near dying myself right now. And if God doesn't intervene, I'm going to die before I even get to the cross. But that was only part of it. After he was arrested, you know that they put a bag over his head. Men took turns beating on him with a closed fist. And then they would arrogantly mock him and say, come on, son of God, tell us, who is it that hits you? They pulled his beard out in fistfuls. They whipped him with a Roman scourge. If there was a more diabolical instrument of agony, I don't know what it could have possibly been. It was a wooden rod and attached to it were nine lengths of of leather. And glued into that leather were rocks and broken pieces of pottery and broken glass. Anything that was sharp and jagged and could stick. And a Roman soldier would stretch Jesus out so that his skin was as taut as it possibly could be. And then he would bring that whip down upon Jesus. And it wouldn't just bounce off of him. It would stick. And he would turn it to make sure it bit well. And then he would yank it out. And that happened not once, not twice, not ten times, not twenty times, but thirty-nine times that came down on his back. By the time they were done with Jesus, the scourge, he was hanging like ribbons. Historians of the day tell us, if you didn't know that was Jesus on the cross, you would have never known it. He was beaten beyond recognition. You could see his bones from the cross. They put a crown of thorns on his head and didn't just place it there nicely for dramatic effect. They beat it down with reeds 
so it nailed into his skull. Jesus should have died before he got to the cross. But if he had, you and I would be lost in our sin. And so when he got into that garden, he was saying, Holy Spirit of God, save me from death and strengthen me so that I can make it to the cross and that your children would have the sacrifice because their salvation is worth my struggle. And you're saved today because Jesus thought your salvation was worth his pain and his struggle and his difficulty. Shame on us. Shame on all of us for thinking we can't make it. Jesus blazed the trail and said, you can't do it. But lest you grow weary and discouraged in your soul, you look to me and you will find that the same Holy Spirit that empowered me will empower you to go all the way in Jesus' mighty name. That's why the author of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus. That's why Peter said that Jesus suffered in his flesh to get our eyes off what we're going through and to consider what Jesus did. And it's why Paul said, now I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that saved you, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing unto him, which is your reasonable act of worship. It's reasonable. When you consider all that Jesus did to save you, it's only reasonable that you would say, it may not be easy, but I would rather die than sin against my God. Salvation is worth the struggle. In Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed.